Let me ask you first, Kevin, you work on the great continent of, of Africa. When did your fascination with tropical medicine begin? Well, it, it wasn't really a fascination with tropical medicine exactly. I was doing medicine in Liverpool. I'm not sure that I was so fascinated with medicine. What I was fascinated with was international affairs and international politics and that sort of thing. And what I knew was I didn't want to work in the UK. I think the fascination with tropical medicine as medicine came later once I began to actually move in that direction. So it was probably once I qualified, um, although before I was qualified, I was very interested in international politics and affairs. Was there a, a pathway, a professional career pathway for you to follow? No, uh, there wasn't at all, really. Um, and I don't think there ever has been, except you look at the example of other people that you meet. And tropical medicine is a small world, and you tend to be very influenced by what other people have done. So the fact that somebody is doing it makes you think, well, it must be possible to do it. And you don't realise until it's too late that there isn't actually a, a kind of pathway. But I'm not sure that's ever inhibited anybody, though. I don't think it's a big... It wasn't a big issue. I, I feel strange saying that now, because now a lot of my work's to do with providing career pathways for, for researchers, and I, can, and I think it is obviously critically important. But when I look at what I, my own pathway, I wasn't ever really aware of a pathway. On Sunday, the 25th of April, was yeah. World Malaria Day. Yeah. Your own work on the east coast of Kenya, are you particularly involved with the treatment of, of malaria? Yeah, no, I mean, malaria it was our raison d'etre originally. Now as a programme, of course, we work on um, a whole range of conditions, um, mostly infectious, not, but not even limited to infectious diseases. But malaria was our raison d'etre. I'm personally a malariologist um, and... A lot of the work we've been done has been in defining the actual illness itself, a lot of treatment trials and investigating the pathophysiology of malaria. Um, and that continues today, even though the whole pattern of malaria is changing in Africa, still a large part of our work is on both prevention and treatment of malaria. Malaria, severe malaria, for example, how is it different in Kenya than it might be in West Africa? It isn't really so much a difference of West or East. It's um, the, the way malaria presents is very related to the level of transmission. That's to say how much malaria there is. Because within Africa, people often have this idea that Africa is sort of one enormous uh, malarial continent. And that's not true at all. Your risks of malaria, your risk of being bitten by an infected mosquito might vary in Africa from practically naught to sort of hundreds or even, even at its extreme, thousands of times in a night. So there's an enormous range and how malaria presents is very dependent on that. So in areas where there's lots of malaria, that's at lots of exposure, um, all the malaria as a severe problem is concentrated in very young children. And there the major problem tends to be um, anemia, destruction of the red cells. In areas where there's less transmission, but still enough to be a real problem, you tend to get older children, still not very old, but um, three or four years old, for instance, and they present with a, a somewhat different form called cerebral malaria, which people always sort of talk of as being the most fearsome sort of malaria. It's not a specific sort of malaria, it's, it's just one way of presenting with the disease. It's certainly not the one you'd want to get. No, you, you wouldn't. In your own experience, have you, have you lost any of your Oxford researchers? Have you ever had malaria yourself? How dangerous is it working in Africa? Well, I'm happy to say we haven't yet lost anybody in that in that sense. Um, I've had malaria um, ten times now. It's it's certainly very unpleasant, and on one occasion I felt extremely ill. It certainly used to be the case, if you look back at the history of tropical medicine, even the relatively recent history, it wasn't uncommon for people working in the in the field to be, to 
die of tropical diseases. I'm happy to say we've not lost anyone in, in that sense within our own program, but, um, but certainly malaria is not something you'd want, and if you had it, you wouldn't want to leave it untreated. The real risk is leaving it untreated, and that's why having malaria in Britain is probably more of a problem than having malaria in Africa, where at least people are aware that that's the problem. The first Nobel Prize mm. awarded to a British scientist was Ronald Ross at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm. He said a malarious country can never be truly economically independent. Do you see that still today in Africa? I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, as you probably know, this is quite a contentious area in the, in the sense that there's a, there's, a, there's a cycle between infectious diseases in general and malaria in particular and poverty. One leads to the other and it continues in the cycle. I mean, Jeff Sachs, uh, the, the economist, and his group have, have written a lot about this. And the problem is, I think a lot of the calculations, a lot of the estimates, to me, seem to be inevitably kind of Im imprecise. But on the other hand, if you do plot, uh, using UNICEF data, gross national product, or, or any measure of, growth of national income, uh, for malarious and non-malarious countries, it's very clear that at any given level of income, uh, child mortality is lower in non-malarial countries. And there does seem to be, I think, a pretty convincing relationship between poverty and malaria. We know that the uh, tropical medicine has got a colonial past and mm. colonial origins. Um, are you still conscious of that as a white man, director of the unit in Africa? <laughs> I know you're trying to eradicate yeah. it, and most of the people yeah. we work with, of course, yeah. are Kenyans. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, I think you've got to be conscious of any history, and you wouldn't want to deny the history of an area. I mean, I, I think when you, when, when you look at it, you could become sort of weighed down by colonial guilt. I think you know, that, would be, that would get tedious after a while. I mean, basically, I've lived and worked in Africa for most of my working life. I've been in Kenya for 20 years. Um, of course, I'm aware of the um, of the history, and I'm aware of the nuances of being in that position. But on the other hand, um, on a working day level, I work in a program of nearly 800 people, of which sort of uh, 770 are East African, and our day-to-day -day working life is about building a, a an internationally competitive science grouping in East Africa. But nonetheless, yeah, you have to be aware of the history and you have to be aware of the perceptions that that can cause in certain circumstances, both in the North and within Africa. How has the, your original interest in the dynamics of political decision-making, mm. international relations, how has that uh, initial interest, how has it worked mm. through into your daily working life now? <laughs> Well, I suppose you could say, it, like lots of people, it's got it's got sort of rather put aside by day-to-day -day aspects of, of life. I suppose its major effect was on the decision to base my career actually in Africa, and that was very much based around the realisation that um, early on, when I was first training and going to international meetings in America and Britain um, and in Africa, and realising that the kind of the, the power, as it were, inevitably was in the north because that's where the money was, that's where the science basis was. Um, and wanting to kind of redress that to some degree, not, not, in, not with the thought that you could change all that in one go, but, but, but the feeling that, in fact, um, to be of any use, really, to, and certainly to become incorporated into national policy in any way, 
the science or the health research had to be much closer to the actual origin of the problem and really had to be in country and had to have a sense of ownership within that country and I guess that's what that's that's the major effect of those you know my early interest has been translated through into the way that we actually do do our research you undertook your training in Liverpool yeah. which relatively is a deprived area of Britain yeah. this great developed and very rich country yeah. Khalifa is also a poor area, isn't it, of Kenya, which relatively, mm. Kenya is a developed country within East Africa. Within Sub-Saharan Africa, it's true, Kenya has always been thought of as being one of the stronger economies. Um, it's actually not a particularly strong economy. Um, and of course, in the last couple of years, the sort of political um, scene there has been unstable. Um, nonetheless, it's certainly true that within East Africa, it's always been seen as the success story compared with, with other countries. Uh, but as in all countries, there's a massive disparity of wealth. So although there's a big Kenyan middle class building up, it's a, it's only big kind of relative to how what was the case in the past. And still, the vast majority of Kenya is rural and poor, and in most instances, very poor. Of course, a Khalifa is a wonderful tabernacle of modernity, your lab. But you're doing a courageous thing, really, aren't you? You're you're training people up, giving them a career mm. in molecular medicine, mm. uh, and providing mm. a, a career pathway that you didn't actually have yourself. Obviously, we don't just train people in molecular medicine. We we train uh, the program is right across the board from epidemiology through lab-based medicine to health policy, and in all those instances, I think we are very aware that there's no point in um, or little point in taking people halfway down a training and then saying well sink or swim in a context where there's no there's no framework you've got to be able to see your way forward even if it's in the kind of when I look back at the UK system it's certainly not ideal from a career point of view in science and I'm sure if you talk to any scientists in Britain they they wouldn't see themselves in an ideal position with funding problems and this sort of thing but at least there is a framework that you can see if you do well uh, you can see what the next post or the next fellowship you would apply for would be and you can see what you need to do to get it. And there's, that, there's got to be that at an absolute minimum within um, African science to make it worthwhile for people to draw the smartest people into science. Do you think that your own work in tropical medicine, the great investment at Oxford University and Wellcome making, does that have any payback for medicine in general and mm. for the British people? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that, that question of whether it has to have a payback. And depending on the sort of political context you're in, this changes. I remember in the 80s going to a, a meeting involving the Welcome and MRC about the future of tropical medicine. And at that time, um, as you can imagine, you know, the whole emphasis was on demonstrating what the value, what the actual value was to, to Britain. I have to say, I've always felt very sceptical of that. Um, and not to retreat to the sort of academic ivory tower and say, oh, well, you know, science has a, has a value of its own. I think it does. I think it has a massive cultural value of its own. But I think you've also got to be able to, you know, defend yourself and why you're putting a certain amount of money into different things. And certainly the kind of work we do, I think it's, it's essential that you can demonstrate the link between what you're doing and what you're, what you're aiming to do in terms of improving people's health and lives. So it isn't that I'm sort of saying it isn't important, but I don't think you can reduce it to that kind of formulaic approach of demonstrating what this does for Britain. I think, you know, um, health is uh, increasingly considered to be a rights issue. It's health is a human right. We live in a, a globalised international world. I don't see much 
benefit in sort of splitting arguments about, well, where's the relative benefit to Britain or the rest of the world? I think, I mean, you can do that, but I feel there are other artificial arguments. I, to me, the benefit has to come from what you set out to do and did you manage to do what you trying to do, whether that's to prevent malaria, whether it's to improve um, neonatal mortality or whatever. Motivations are interesting and human motivations mm. are very different. As a, as a physician, as a doctor, you are there to reduce human suffering. Mm. But is there an element that really people like yourself are, are in Africa for the pursuit of science? I think there's both. I think there always has been in all aspects of research, not just medical research. I think there's always uh, a kind of split or at least a tension between your your simple inquisitiveness, you know, the thing, the thing that drives someone to be a naturalist or whatever, on the one hand, and then your kind of position as a kind of person in society and your moral view of the world or whatever on the other and sometimes there's a tension between them but I think it's usually a, uh, I think it's usually a creative tension I think it's good to keep going backwards and forwards from one to the other because mm. your own speciality or one of the things you specialize in is immune responses mm. why this person gets cerebral malaria yeah. and this person doesn't What's the answer to this? <laughs> well, it's embarrassing after um, however many years it is to not be able to tell you di- exactly what the issue is. Um, I think the closest we could come to that is, it will be to say, wrong person, wrong parasite at the wrong time. That's to say that there's probably things to do with individual... We know that for sure, that some people are more or less susceptible, just as they are to many diseases, for a whole range of reasons. Um, and then we know that parasites vary. Parasites are incredibly adaptable, and part of that adaptation is to produce a whole range of parasites that can do different things under different circumstances. So under circumstances which have favoured parasites which grow very rapidly and are very successful, um, if that wrong parasite encounters the wrong person in the sense of the person with a genetic predisposition to not make a good initial response, for instance, then in a broad sense, I, I think, I think that's what leads to why does one person die and another person survive. But at the specific level, it, you have to be absolutely honest to say, we really still don't know. Do you think in your lifetime yeah. you will see what we would call eradication <laughs> of malaria? Uh, it depends how long I live. <laughs> um, I think eradication is uh, eradicate. It's interesting, isn't it, the way eradications come back on the agenda? I mean, eradication. Anybody who works on any infectious disease must aim at eradication. I'm sure people who kind of work on TB or measles or whatever go to bed at night dreaming of, you know, coming up with the the idea that would will eradicate it. So, in that sense, I think it's absolutely right that we've focused on or being refocused on eradication. Uh, it's had a very stimulating effect on kind of um, the research agenda. I think in Africa right now, eradication is an absolute irrelevance. And even elimination, you know, this distinction, well, elimination or eradication. I think right now in most of sub-Saharan Africa, the issue is control. And one of our concerns is that there is in fact massive changes are happening in, in, in Africa. Uh, malaria is changing in many areas. Um, deaths from malaria are coming down. Um, the effect of international investment is beginning to kind of um, come through in many areas. And for the next, certainly in the next 10 to 20 years, um, the issue is to reduce malaria to basically uh, a nuisance disease rather than a kind of major cause of childhood 
mortality. After that, it will be possible to move towards elimination or eradication. So 10 to 20 years, well, I hope to be around in 20 years' time. So I, I hope to be around at the point where we're beginning to look towards elimination and eradication more seriously. Um, but right now, I don't think that's the issue in Africa. It is in, in some parts of the world, it is the issue right now, but not in Africa. You have this wonderful collaboration between the Kenyan government, Kenyan mm. authorities, the Welcome and Oxford. Yeah. Do you find a lot of medical students are now interested in tropical medicine and want to come out and yeah. do electives with you? Yeah. What kind of uh, training can you offer them? Yeah, well, uh, we, I mean, we do have lots of medical students who want to come. I think it's pretty much always been the case. I know when I was doing medicine, you know, or, or, or at least a subgroup of medical students have always wanted to kind of get out to, to exciting places. Um, so we do have a lot of students. We have a lot of students from Oxford. We have a lot of students actually from other UK universities, from European universities, and within Africa. We specifically target students from Tanzania, Uganda, and, and, and Kenya. And I guess what we offer them is the opportunity to see a good level of clinical practice and research combined. And what we tend not to do is push people down the route of saying, well, you've got to do a project, you've got to write up a research paper and this sort of thing. I, I think at that stage in your career, the most interesting and exciting thing is just to be immersed in something and exposed to it. So when students come to us, we, we, I actively discourage them from wanting to do projects. If they're coming for a short elective, if they're coming for a long, occasionally we have people come for, say, six months, in which case we would encourage them to do projects. But when people come for, say, three months, I although they may end up doing a project, I actually discourage them and say, look, don't get hooked on that. What you actually want to do is just immerse yourself in it and see everything, see, you know, right across the board, see as much as you can and get the feel of it. The practitioners in tropical mm. medicine tend to be territorial, but it's so exciting to live in a different culture in mm. Africa. Are you still excited by that <laughs> difference that, that medicine has brought to your life than if you'd stayed in academic medicine in Oxford? I suppose it's become just a background now in which you work. So for me, in one sense, I mean, I, Kenya is home for us. Um, in that sense, I don't see it as, a, as in any way exotic or, or, or different. But at the same time, I am struck, and I don't know quite how to say this without sounding a bit condescending, but I am struck whenever I come back to the UK, which I enjoy doing, I don't come very often, but I am struck often by the... I have to say, triviality of a lot of people's concerns. So in that sense, I think I do still enjoy that difference of living in Africa. But even in saying that, I'm aware that if I lived in Britain, I would very quickly sort of take on the same concerns and the same issues. So I'm hoping that's not too condescending. But I am still struck by the excite excitement, I don't know if it's the right word, but the the kind of the reality, as it were, or the, or the buzz of living in a challenging environment um, and being engaged with which is really exciting but I think that would be true wherever you were so I think if I ended up in New Zealand or Canada or, or Cornwall I think I'd have probably felt the same eventually about it. We would become trivial again. <laughs> uh, where you are in your professional career you can look backwards to the living founding fathers of tropical medicine the Eldred Parries, mm. uh, David Worrell, Wetherill all of those and you can look at the new generation mm. and one of the things we can see now is that tropical medicine maybe when you entered it mm. wasn't the apogee of medicine mm. but today it stands as one of the great glories of of British medicine and the amount of papers that come out yeah. now yeah. so that is extraordinary do you feel that you're you're onto something good 
certainly the the idea of globalized health is something which is now much more kind of generalized than I think I think you're right I think 25 30 years ago tropical medicine was seen as a somewhat esoteric exotic by water as it were I think now um, international health and the realization that new diseases um, emerge suddenly anywhere in the world I think that's broken down the uh, the boundaries. And although I don't at all disown the tropical medicine label, I think you know that would be a bit like you know trying to cover up your past, as it were. I don't particularly think of what we do as tropical medicine. I think of what we do as just medicine and health in particular environments. And the, and the particular environment I work in has a set of problems which are sometimes called tropical. But to be honest, malaria is about the only tropical thing that we deal with. All the other things we put a lot of our effort into are exactly the same issues that you would have been sort of working on in, in sort of London or Liverpool or Manchester um, 150 years ago. They're, they're basically diseases of poverty, they're infectious diseases. So I think the tropical label, I'm not sure, but the international health or global health, um, I have to say global health isn't a, I keep using it as a term I actually quite dislike for various reasons, but that whole internationalised sense of medicine I think now it is much more pervasive and much more so it means that what you're doing has a has a wider stage and you can see that for instance if you look at the kind of the way the, the lancet for instance to take an example you know one of the premier medical journals if you look now it's astonishing how many of the articles and comments every week are essentially about things which in the past would have been thought to be part of tropical medicine and that's good i mean it shows a kind of an international awareness so it's not just true of the lancet it's true of um you know say even the new england journal or plus or whatever for yourself and your your own particular work, do you feel that now you are firmly planted in Africa, or do you feel you're still part of the Oxford medical system? Uh, I suppose I'd have to say a bit of both, but I, but I I would certainly lean towards firmly planted in Africa in the sense that that's where I spent most of my working career. It's where I live. It's where I regard as home. It's where our kids grew up, uh, and it's where I'll continue to be so in that sense definitely I see myself as being based in Africa having said that I'm very happy um, to be part of Oxford and the Oxford tradition um, I, I people often say things that you know unique and this sort of thing and what they usually mean is that, that they just want to advertise their own particular area and that sort of thing but I think probably Oxford tropical medicine and this is a realization which crept up on me rather than you know was evident from the beginning probably is quite unique in the sense that there's an enormous concentration of um, tropical medicine in terms of output from within Oxford. And it's, and it's a group of people who've known each other for many years and who've kind of worked together but apart. And it's particularly characterised by this thing of most of them not being in Oxford. And I think that's the thing which kind of characterises it compared with any other centre in the north which you know has a large international tropical interest. The thing which really differentiates Oxford is that most of the practitioners aren't in Oxford. They are long-term based in institutions in, in the developing world, whether it's in Southeast Asia or, or Africa. So I'm actually very happy to be part of that tradition and I enjoy my links with Oxford and I enjoy uh, coming back and um, being part of Oxford. But you know, if you ask me where am I really based, I'd have to say I spend probably a few weeks a year in Oxford and most of my life in Kenya.